0: This morning in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter. Uh, Our text this morning will be verse 15. And after we read from the inspired Word of God in Genesis 3, which you can find in your pew Bible on page 3, we'll also be reading from the Belgic Confession, article 17. And in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page one hundred seventy. As we turn to Genesis 3, I want to remind all of us, but especially the young people and the boys and girls, uh, that we believe that the Bible is given by inspiration. uh, That is, the Holy Spirit breathed out each and every word. And what we have in Genesis 3 is not just a fairy tale. It's not just a myth. It's not just the thoughts of men. But It is the very Word of God. And it describes with precision historical events that actually took place, there was a real time and a real place in which the events that are described in Genesis 3 took place. Now the world we readily acknowledge, the world laughs at us for believing this truth, but nevertheless, we do not take our cues from the world as what we are to believe, but rather we submit ourselves to the Word of God, which we read this morning from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And again, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 17 on page 170, entitled, The Recovery of Fallen Man. And it states there, We believe that our good God, by His marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find Him, though man trembling all over was fleeing from Him. And He comforted Him, promising to give Him His Son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make Him blessed. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ by way of introduction and also just simply by way of observation. Uh, There are people in this life who you encounter that you might say that they have a kind face. And I'm not sure all that goes into this, but just the very structure of their face, but also maybe a smile, a smile that they constantly have that even forms certain lines on their face as the years go by. And you look at someone and you say, well, well, there is a kind face. By contrast, also perhaps because of one's demeanor or because of one's perspective on life or perhaps because simply of some of the experiences that one has in life. There are other persons uh, who you might look at them and say, well, there is a rather stern face. There perhaps even is a face that just speaks of discouragement and anger and frustration. Uh, Now, our only point for bringing up this mere observation is to present ourselves with a question. And of course, we speak in figurative language because... God in His divine nature does not have a face composed of a smile or a frown and, and eyes and things of that nature. But when you think about your God, do you have this understanding that He has a kind face? Or do you have this understanding that He has a stern face? What is your perception of the face of God toward you this morning. For the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the Christian, for the humble believer, the main point that I want to try to communicate this morning is that the face of Almighty God towards you is a kind face. A kind face that is characterized by grace and by mercy. By covenant faithfulness by this grace and this mercy and this covenantal faithfulness that especially is expressed in the Gospel and in the Gospel promise as we find that Gospel promise first given and recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A John Calvin comments, and he says, In Christ, God's face shines full of grace and gentleness even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. Think of it for a moment. God's face shines upon us. Is that not part of the benediction that we so often hear on a Sunday morning? God's face shines upon us with temporal blessings, but especially with eternal blessings. God's face shines upon us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ as a face that is full of grace and of gentleness, even upon poor and unworthy sinners. Well, we want to unfold this truth this morning with this theme, our belief concerning the gospel promise, noticing, first of all, the source of the gospel promise, and then secondly, the purpose of the gospel promise, and then thirdly, the contents of the gospel promise. This gospel promise, uh, what it is, first of all, in relation to its source, and then its purpose, and then its contents, the gospel promise. And again, we pick up Genesis 3, verse 15 as the first historic expression of the gospel promise. And the word gospel just simply means good news, the good news of a, of a new era, of the establishment of a new kingdom, which we know from Scripture is a redemptive kingdom, a, a, a redemptive kingdom that God institutes in and through the seed of the woman, more specifically, in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, of course, the gospel must always be directly connected to the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, seen in His steps of humiliation and in His steps of exaltation. So while various persons want to put various adjectives in connection to the Gospel, and so they speak of perhaps a social Gospel or of a liberation Gospel. We speak of a redemptive Gospel whereby the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ brings a full and a free salvation from sin and from sinfulness and all of the consequent misery that is connected to sin and sinfulness. Now, where did this Gospel and this gospel promise come from of course it comes from God and so if you wanted to just simply with one word summarize the source of the gospel promise you could just simply write God perhaps more specifically the Lord God God acts but he acts according to his wisdom and his goodness And that's what Article 17 of the Belgic Confession is at pains to emphasize as it gathers together the testimony of the Word of God and as it, we believe, faithfully summarizes the Word of God. Uh, The Belgic Confession comes to us and it says, when we plumb the depths of Scripture's revelation, the Gospel, the Gospel promise that God, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that comes out of the wisdom of God. Now, what exactly is wisdom? More specifically, what exactly is the wisdom of God? Uh, we speak of the attributes of God. Now, of course, in God, all of His attributes are one, but we, following Scripture, we divide these attributes for our study's sake. And so we speak of both knowledge and wisdom of God, and there are a variety of other attributes. The knowledge of God, theologians often rightfully say, uh, has this idea that, From eternity, in an instantaneous moment, God knows absolutely everything actual and possible. I often like to think of it this way. Boys and girls, we learn much. You can think of math. And so you start, you go off to school, or perhaps you begin studying at home, and you begin to learn how to count, and one turns into two, and then perhaps you can count up to ten, and then up to a hundred. Then you start to add and subtract and multiply and divide. You learn things. You go from grade 1 to grade 2 to grade 3 to grade 4, etc. God has never learned anything because He has always known everything. And that attribute already gives us reason to praise and to glorify our God this morning. But wisdom is something a little bit different. Wisdom, to borrow a definition from uh, the late theologian Louis Burkhoff. Wisdom is that perfection or that attribute or that characteristic of God whereby He applies His knowledge to the attainment of His ends in a way which glorifies Him most. So knowledge is the truth that God knows all things, actual and possible. Wisdom is this attribute that given His infinite knowledge, He also chooses knowing that which is the best the best to glorify Himself the most. And so the Gospel, the Gospel promise, comes out of the wisdom of God, whereby God knew from all of eternity everything that would and could take place, and He then determined in His eternal decree the things that would glorify Him the most. And that which glorifies Him the most is the Gospel and the Gospel promise. And we just simply make This point of application, it is not the wisdom of man that brings salvation. Adam and Eve do not look upon their dire predicament and say, what can we now then do? Adam does not come up with a solution. Eve does not come up with a solution. Humanity cannot come up with the ultimate solution for that which ails humanity. And yet there are so many who exasperate themselves, but also who pretend that Humanity by itself can solve humanity's dilemma. Well, the sad truth, but also the comforting truth, is that man can never fix man. But God's wisdom can and has. Not only God's wisdom, but also the attribute of His goodness. The goodness of God is the truth that God is all that God should be. God is exactly who He should be. God is a good God. And the goodness of God displays itself to us as His chosen people, as His elect, with love, with grace, and with mercy. And I know we use these words so often, grace and mercy, but I want to be clear this morning on what these words represent. Again, attributes of God, characteristics of our God, a grace Again, just following Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology, grace is the unmerited, synonym for unmerited, unearned, undeserved. Grace is, and this ought to be at the very heartbeat of our mind's idea, grace is unmerited. Grace is undeserved. It is the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. So when we read Genesis 3, and when we read there that Adam and Eve having plunged themselves into misery through the sinful rebellion against their good God, by the way of the instigation of the devil, when we read that Adam and Eve go off and they hide, trembling all over, as our Belgian Confession states. And then when we read that God comes and seeks Adam out, That's a display of the good grace of God. The love of God to those who had forfeited it. And not only grace, but also then mercy. And mercy is the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress. And so when we read Genesis 3, and when we especially focus upon Genesis 3.15 and this first gospel promise, we ought to see that it is saturated. Saturated. It is saturated with the goodness of God, with the grace of God, and with the mercy of God, so that we should not be able to even comprehend the narrative that is described in Genesis 3 without being confronted continually with the evidence that our God is a good God. And what that means especially is that He is a God of grace. That He gives undeserved and unmerited Love and favor towards those who had cast themselves into a miserable situation. And He is a God who is also a God of mercy. That He is a God who pities those who are in misery or distress. And that's why we chose to read that narrative where Jesus Christ interacts with Zacchaeus. Because lots can be said about Zacchaeus. But at least this must be said about Zacchaeus. He was a miserable sinner. But Jesus Christ met him. Jesus Christ met him being full of grace and overflowing with mercy. And Jesus Christ looked upon Zacchaeus and with the goodness and with the grace and with the mercy that is in Jesus Christ, he said, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house today because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So the Gospel the gospel comes out of the wisdom and the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of God. And this ought to especially motivate us to worship and to praise and to glorify our God. That's why Psalm 96, verse 2 says, Sing to the Lord, bless His name. We might ask, well, why should we sing to the Lord? Why should we bless His name? Well, it goes on, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. And I would submit to you that if we are confronted experientially with the reality of the goodness of God, with His grace and His mercy, we ought to be eager to worship the Lord our God. And so the Gospel promise comes out of this source. But what then is its purpose? And our second point, the purpose of the Gospel promise is a gracious purpose and also is a seeking purpose. Now, bear in mind what we've just said. Grace is this undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor from God towards those sinners whom He has chosen to display His goodness to. You might think of Ephesians 2, verse 8, a verse that is often memorized by the people of God, and certainly rightfully so. Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, That can refer to the grace and the faith and the whole of salvation. Salvation, gracious salvation through faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That gift, that word gift, that idea gift is this undeserved, unmerited, unearned action of God on behalf of those who are in a state of sin. And a condition of sinfulness. This is what makes grace so amazing. And and I confess that the danger is probably most real for someone in my position who is to spend their days studying the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, preparing to speak on the Word of God, going from house to house and from pastor visit to pastor visit, but also preparing sermons and catechism classes and uh, youth group lessons. We are confronted continually with these words and with these realities, at least in theory, of, of grace. And the danger is this, that we no longer appreciate the wonder of grace. And we are no longer overwhelmed by the amazing nature of grace. And we belong to a church, thanks be to God's providence, that historically emphasizes the five solas, so to speak, of the Reformation. Grace alone. I think it only fitting that we periodically ask ourselves, as individuals who make up this congregation, but also as a congregation, and perhaps this is something even that the leadership of the congregation could reflect upon, Do we display that we are amazed by grace? That we are amazed that God in His infinite transcendence would come and would seek us who are lost. God could have, and this was picked up by our canons of Dort in the first head of doctrine in the opening articles, God could have never descended from His infinite throne of majesty. He could have just said enough with Adam and enough with Eve. Now I know He had His eternal decree of election, so in that regards He could not have, but we speak here in the somewhat broader picture. God could have said, Adam... You've made your decision. I'm done with you. But he didn't. Because he's a God of grace. And grace then motivates God to come with the gospel and say, Adam, where are you? Now, boys and girls, I want to try to help you. You know, maybe sometimes you play hide and seek. Or maybe sometimes you're, you're out doing something and, you're, and your mom says, where are you? Or, come here. Don't think that God is walking around in this Garden of Eden and He doesn't know where Adam is. Don't think that this is some type of game of hide and seek. God knows exactly where Adam is. And He knows exactly where Eve is. And He knows exactly why they are where they are. He knows that Adam is hiding out of a sense of shame. And he knows that Eve is also hiding out of her sense of shame. And he knows that Adam and Eve have lost the conscious awareness of the favor of their Creator, their Lord, and their God. He knows that they're trying to cover themselves and their shame with human efforts. And in that question, Adam, where are you? There is a kind disposition. Disposition a kind disposition of grace and of mercy. So it is with us. When God initially, through the external call of the Gospel and through the work of regeneration, when He calls out to us and He says to us, where are you? What is your state? What is your condition? And you you could say that when Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus, it was in essence the repetition of this first gospel promise. Zacchaeus, where are you? And the answer would have been, well, I'm a rich man, but my riches have come by way of extortion. I'm right there with the publicans. I'm a tax collector. I'm a lost sinner. Jesus says, with the kindness of grace and mercy. Zacchaeus, I know that. And that's exactly why I must go to your house today. Because I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Those who are lost in their sin. Those who are lost in their misery. And that brings us into this idea of a seeking purpose. Uh, The language of our Belgic Confession, of course, we understand it is not inspired. It summarizes uh, the testimony of Scripture. But it does so uh, with accuracy. Uh, And so it states that man, trembling all over, was fleeing from God. But God set out to find him. Isn't that absolutely remarkable? What would motivate God to Set out to find Adam? What would motivate God to set out to find Eve? What would motivate God to set out and find Zacchaeus? What would motivate God to set out and find you? Or to find me? To find us? And here's where the doctrine of unconditional election has to become very, very real because if for a moment we even have the imagination well, God saw something in me that motivated Him to set out and find me. Then, my friend, we do not understand grace. Nor do we understand mercy. So don't think for a moment even in the subconscious level that God looked and saw your pedigree. Or that God looked upon me and saw something within my history. I said, oh yes, I will seek Him. It was all of grace. And it was all of mercy. And that ought to again reiterate the importance of then coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in the act of faith, but also with the Worship and the praise and the glory to God that flows out of their recognition that it is all of grace. But this also is then which gives hope to sinners who are lost in their sin and in their ruin. Because oftentimes the message can be communicated to those who find themselves in the most dire of circumstances within this life. And no doubt many people Maybe even people who hear these words will look at their life circumstances and all of the brokenness and all of the impact of sin and they might say, well, my life is a ruin and I don't see any way out of it. I've tried to fix it, but I can't fix it. And it seems the more I try to fix it, the more damage I do. And maybe the realization of such a situation brings a person to begin to tremble all over, even perhaps even in their physical demeanor. And so they're filled with anxieties. They're filled with fears. They're overwhelmed with life circumstances which are in many ways the result of their sin and of their sinful choices. What then is their hope? That the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So we need to be very, very careful of the message that we send out. The message of the church should not be well, seek to improve yourself. Seek to clean yourself up a little bit. Seek to reform the external behavior of your life, and then you will find happiness, joy, and contentment. That's a lie. It's a lie that, of course, causes unspeakable anguish. The gospel doesn't come to Adam and Eve as they are trembling uh, in the hidden recesses of the garden, trying to cover themselves. The gospel doesn't come and say, well, Adam, if you can just sew those fig leaves together in an appropriate manner, then you can come out and stand in the presence of God. The Gospel is in essence Adam, Eve. God knows exactly what you have done. But He has a promise. And the promise does not hinge upon what Adam and Eve are able to do. The promise hinges upon that which God has promised He would do. And that brings us into our third point, the contents of the Gospel promise. And of course, the Gospel promise is all centered upon the person of the Son, and the work of the Son. you notice that our translators have given us a, a hint, you might say, or a cue in verse 15 by the capitalization of the seed of the woman. Other Scripture passages, most notably within Galatians, talk about how this seed is ultimately the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we just want to make clear again this morning that the Gospel promise and indeed the entirety of the Gospel It all focuses upon the person of Jesus Christ. And we say this without any embarrassment, but we will sound this note as long as we are able to speak. Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And we will do so because we are convinced by the testimony of Scripture, also supported by our own experience, uh, that repentant sinners never tire of hearing of Jesus Christ. Repentant sinners will never ever say, Well, we've heard enough about Jesus Christ. What tired repentant sinners will say is, We have heard enough about Pharisaical righteousness. We have heard enough about mere external moralism. Because a Pharisaical righteousness and an external moralism just confront the repentant sinner over and over again with their. Total inability. I cannot improve myself. You cannot reform yourself. Only the transformative power of the Gospel as that transformative power is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why that crucial question was put to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 15 and 16. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon answered answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Of the living God. And what a marvelous testimony to God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy that He promises to provide a Savior. And again, Genesis 3 verse 15 is called the first gospel promise, and that first gospel promise is echoed and repeated all throughout the history of historical redemption. And one notable spot that we could stop as we trace this historical revelation is in Genesis 22. Verse 8, and there there's this remarkable statement that Isaac, coming with Abraham, asked this question. Well, Father, I I, I see the wood. And you remember the story. They're they're going to offer up a sacrifice per the command of God. And Isaac is perceptive. He's not a, a toddler. He has gained some understanding throughout the years of what a sacrifice involves. And so he says, Father, I see the wood. And I see the fire. I see some of the necessary components for a sacrifice. What I don't see is the victim. What I don't see is the actual sacrifice. And then congregation, never forget these words spoken by faith in Genesis 22, verse 8. My son, God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering you see the gospel of God's goodness, grace, and mercy in that statement? My son, God will provide the sacrifice. And this is why in a remarkable connection, when John the Baptist heralds the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, in, for example, John 1, verse 36, it says there, John the Baptist, looking at Jesus as Jesus walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Behold has this idea, yes, look, but not just look, look with a perception, look with a recognition, look with an acknowledgement. And this is simply what the gospel preaching continues to do today. What is a preacher supposed to do? Well, I suppose he's supposed to stand in the pulpit and open up the Word of God and in essence say to anyone who in the providence of God would come to hear the words that come out of his mouth, just simply this, Behold the Lamb of God. And that, in essence, is all I do in this congregation this morning. Look, perceive the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look with the eye of faith and see that the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God has provided the sacrifice has provided the substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ through His work. And this ties in also with this promise that is given that the seed of the woman, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, would crush in an annihilating crush the seed of the serpent. This is picked up, uh, as many of you well know, in Romans 16, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul draws his epistle to the Romans to a close with this statement, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And when you think of all of the misery that comes upon the human race, yes, certainly there is moral culpability, moral responsibility for the actions of humanity. But all of the misery that comes upon the human race as a result of that first instigating temptation of Satan when he came to Eve, the mother of all the living, and said, has God really said? And then he, Satan said, you will not die. Once that lie is believed, the result is misery. The result is ruin. Ruin. The result, of course, is death. Physical death begins its eroding process. Spiritual death comes upon the human race. The prospect of eternal death comes to plague humanity. And so when you think of everything that causes grief, sorrow, and toil within this fallen world, even the thorns and the thistles that constantly combat the activities of the human race, and when you think of the disease and of the death and of the Friction and of the lack of harmony within humanity, it can all be traced back to Genesis 3. But so can this Gospel promise that Jesus Christ has at the cross and will at His physical return crush Satan under your feet shortly. The God of peace. And so the work of the Son is that which alone brings true lasting blessing. Including, of course, the forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. Uh, and of peace and of harmony and of true spiritual fulfillment and contentment. And so in closing, we reiterate the call of the Gospel. What is the call of the Gospel? The call of the Gospel is simply this. God has provided a redemptive Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Not only does the call of the Gospel make that fact known, but the call of the Gospel then comes and commands all men, women, children, everyone who hears the proclamation of the provision of Jesus Christ, the call of the gospel also commands in a winsome, loving, earnest manner. Now, therefore, believe. Believe the gospel promise in the exercise of faith. Cling to it. Hope in it. Rejoice in it. Stake all of time and all of eternity in this fact that Humanity trembling from the presence of God by virtue of their own sinful rebellion also then heard this Gospel promise that in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, We conclude by a quote from the late P.Y.D. Young. In this text and in this article, in the truth that is summarized With Article 17, God comes to man. i just meditate on that this afternoon. God comes to man. So many of the false religions have man somehow climbing up to God. The true Gospel, God comes to man. U.I. D. Young continues, For there is no other way by which man can again come to God. There is no other way by which man can again come to God outside of God coming to man. God came to man in the garden with the first Gospel promise. God came to man through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, We rejoice at the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice even as we stand amazed at your attributes as they are displayed in this first gospel promise of your wisdom, of your goodness, of your grace, and of your mercy. Uh, We ask, Heavenly Father, that through these morning exercises that the Son of Man might have been lifted up, and as He's lifted up, may our hearts be drawn unto Him in the exercise of true faith and sincere repentance. And so we ask for a blessing upon these words to that end, trusting Your promise that Your Word would go forth and not return unto You void, but that it would accomplish its purposes. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.